Okay, I should be here now. Sorry for the delay. Yesterday's program, I was having some audio issues. There was some cutting out. And so, if you would, if you would not mind, as, as you're hearing me, please do, if you notice something, uh, please do let me know in the chat, okay? So if there's anything in the, if there's any audio issues, let me know in the chat. So I'm not continuing, <laughs> I'm not continuing, and there was just a lot of cutting out that I was unaware of. Some there was one or two who said it was happening, and then others said it wasn't. But lo and behold, I saw the edited version, and it was there. So please just let me know in the chat if you can. I'd like to make this an interactive one. Uh, any questions, comments? It's July 4th weekend. I just got off a stream on the left lens with Roxanne Dunbar-Tease. We talked about her new book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and the History of Exclusion and Erasure. It was a great conversation. And so, you know, it's July 4th weekend. I'm sure people are busy but it is July 4th weekend, and that means another year of millions of people celebrating, or at least using the time off to celebrate some version of the origins myth of the United States, that there was a revolution that created an independent so-called USA based on freedom, democracy, against the so-called tyrannical British Empire. Of course, the history is a lot more complicated than that, thanks to people like Gerald Horn, historians like Gerald Horn, who have showed us, who have shown us that the history of the United States and this so-called uh, quote-unquote revolution was actually a counter-revolution to preserve slavery, and to continue onward the genocidal colonization of indigenous people and their lands, the occupation of their lands. So we can talk about a whole number of things, but please do call in with any questions, comments. Uh, I'll just start by saying not a big fan of July 4th. I don't know if you remember last year around this time, Joe Biden was boasting on Twitter that the price of your barbecue products, right, your food products, is down 16 cents. So we should all be happy that Joe Biden is president, that he brought us that 16 cent reduction in prices in July of 2021. Lo and behold, we are now in July of 2022, about to pass another July 4th weekend where there is inflation upwards of an average of 8.6% on all consumer goods. And of course, I know you all are feeling it. I know I am feeling it, that there is inflation of many more percentage points than that on certain goods. So, oh, how far things have come in the United States, how far things have progressed where we go from a 16 cent reduction in your hot dogs and hot dog buns to an 8.6, 9% on damn near everything. I'd call that progress. 
Of course, you know, yesterday I spoke with the NATO summit and thankfully I had on um, Roxanne Dunbar-Tees today because she has a whole chapter in her book Yellow uh, on Not a Nation of Immigrants where she talks about Yellow Peril and she goes over the history of U.S. imperialism, Western imperialism in Asia and how that required the creation of a dehumanized Chinese laborer in order to build the railroads here and in order to produce and enforce the opium wars in uh, China. And of course that helped forward the Imperial project in Asia as a whole. And she goes over that quite well. I see Shelly is in the queue. I'm just going to close by saying that it is another July 4th holiday, another day of remembrance. I hope for many about the crimes of colonialism slavery, of imperialism that is at the foundations of the United States and hopefully, just hopefully, a day to commemorate the fact that there are millions of people over the course of history and even today that are resisting this empire both here and abroad so we can do that instead of celebrating the myths of this country and I have a couple people in the queue now. So I'll get to you guys first, Shelly, since you were first. And then I'll get to you, Shane. So Shelly, you are now able to speak. Hi, Danny. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good to see mm. you again. Yeah, nice to see you. Um, I'm doing good. I'm not really a huge fan of July 4th either. <laughs> I think obvious reasons. Um, but so... One of the things that kind of, because, you know, I spend time in left spaces that aren't as uh, radical as more of your space, basically trying to, like, bring up talking points or, like, bring up things without maybe totally, I don't know, like, kind of laying all the cards on the table. Because, like, sometimes people, it's just they hear certain words and they just turn their brains off, you know, Mm -hmm. they just can't think about anything. Mm-hmm. But so one of the things that I I was lucky enough to get called on in Bree's show again, and I basically was just trying to bring up the, okay, well, then what is the left to do? Like, we can talk about Felicia Somnes and Dave Weigel, or we can talk about, you know, all these kind of, I would consider more bourgeois issues. We can talk about those things and we can have hours and hours and hours of content. But when are we ever going to talk strategy? Like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally. I mean, it's one of the things that we struggle with, I think, in this, in this, I mean, if we consider ourselves in a movement kind of political space, then yes, I think that's where we are struggling the most because I think in order to know what it's a, it's a, di- it's a, like a dialectical relationship between knowing or, or being able to, to talk about what are we going to do and also understanding the reality in front of us so that we are able to even have that conversation. And I think, I mean, in the media, it gets complicated because the media, even independent media, has a kind of has a certain role to it where uh, at least, I'm sure in many people's minds, the main job is to get information out is to tell the truth, is to investigate, is to analyze. And certainly that has a role in any strategy conversation. Uh, But at the same time, 
there is also, I think, a responsibility of people in media, independent media, to also ensure not only that their content and work is reflective of any kind of movement politics uh, that reflects our principles, but also is involved in some way. And I think that's, that's the part that I think, in my opinion, should inform at least for so-called content creators or independent journalists, people on the left who produce media, whatever we want to call ourselves. I think that's really where the strategy conversation needs to happen because I don't believe, just from what I see, that we ourselves are going to lead this. I think sometimes in the absence of a movement, it feels like the media is is a driving force, whether it's the corporate media and its propaganda or whether it's that is creating uh, even more problems for us moving forward or whether it's independent media trying to counter that. I think our big struggle, at least how I feel just on a, uh, on a, on my personal level, because I came out, I came into media as an activist already. I, you know, I'd been involved, still consider myself involved in anti-war movement work and, you know, I've been part of unions, shop steward work, and uh, working with uh, union organizers and Black Lives Matter and Boston in the Boston area. I came out of that into the media. I was starting, I was almost just starting around 2013, 14. And I never really dropped that, like, that overall vision where I wanted my work to reflect and be useful to movements and, and to anyone who's trying to, um, who's trying to fight the, the system of capitalism, imperialism, et cetera. And so, yeah, I, I think, I think the conversation definitely needs to happen. Uh, what do we do from here? I mean, we're getting to a point as I spoke about yesterday where, I mean, we have choices in front of us. It's either we have these discussions or those discussions will be forced upon us in times that are, are very difficult and challenging, which right. includes and, right now. And then we're subject to tailism, um, yep. which isn't going to serve oh, yeah. us or get us anywhere. But that was kind of the whole point. Like one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up and actually one of your callers on the line got in before me and he kind of brought it up, but I was basically just saying, okay, well, fine. Then if we recognize that we're kind of rejecting electoralism and we recognize that, you know, either you go through a third party or you, or you make a new party or anything like that, why aren't we just all having a conversation about, no, whatever thing isn't perfect, like the Green Party isn't perfect. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. why is like mm-hmm. the collective group, are we not just saying, okay, obviously we don't have enough time to like organize a whole party structure. So just everyone go pull the lever for essentially a, a dissenting party, you know, just at least let's start having a strategic conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you, especially in the realm of politics and electoral politics, because it's, it, it, we're coming up on November and it's going to be once again, the dominant conversation that probably most of the left is going to have anyway. So I think it's definitely worth 
raising then. So yeah, I think, I mean, thanks for raising it. We should be talking about it. My, my, if you want my opinion about how we should be approaching electoral politics or even just the strategy conversation. I mean, in the position I'm in, I would love to see more coordination, even if media doesn't have an organization, I would love to see some kind of cooperation, sometimes some kind of organization come out of independent media. Now that there is all of this conversation, talk, and even outlets, you know, even channels and alternative media coming out, some kind of coordination, cooperation around that, that's political in nature, not just, okay, we're doing this because we're shut out of YouTube and Twitter, but also you know, it kind of upholds this overall idea that it is true, even in the digital era, even in the internet era, even in this kind of fast paced, uh, high tech uh, sort of scene, we do need to be on the left, especially we need to be making our own media and we need to be able to sustain ourselves because it's not, and we need to do it cooperatively, you know, because if we don't, it becomes just another tiered uh, structure and and it becomes very susceptible to the political windfalls of of capitalism. So anyway, yeah. that's and then what before, I that's what I hope for. Yeah, me too. And then can I suggest a guest for you that I think um, you guys would sure. have a really great conversation? Um, I really like Gabriel Rockhill and mm-hmm. a lot of the work that he's done around kind of like the global theory industry and kind of a lot of how some like left-wing academics have gotten kind of perverted and off track um, and how mm-hmm. it kind of distracts. So I think, I think you might have a really, really good conversation with him. Oh yeah. 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 No, I would, I've, I'm familiar with some of his work. I know actually my, my colleague, Carlos Martinez, he's going to be speaking at a conference that he's at, but yeah, I've listened to a bit of him. I like his work on fascism too. So yeah, it's yeah, a good suggestion. So, yeah. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Thanks Danny. Appreciate it. All right. So thank you, Shelly. Now, Shane, thanks for your patience. You are the next caller. Hey, Danny. How's it going? How's things? Hi. Hi. Things are okay. How about you? Good, good. Yeah. No, I just find the whole uh, 4th of July thing interesting enough. Um, I'm an Irish man. Um, I suppose I see it from a different point of view. I'm just listening to you, I suppose. And I'm gathering that you don't see it as something worth celebrating. Are you correct in saying that? Yeah, well, I think that there are lots of, I mean, especially in the U.S. context, um, there's a lot of contradictions to it, and it to- and it's been kind of morphed into a holiday to kind of celebrate the greatness of the United States, and I think that, you know. I, I certainly don't recommend people just like stop what they're doing and don't take advantage of the day off. You know, uh, people certainly have the right to, to, to have fun, but I think the political, yeah, the political side of it, certainly I don't believe that people should be celebrating that. I don't know, but I mean, I mean, I do, that's what I think. And but, yeah, uh, I suppose I do need, I need, I do need to kind of follow that up then. Like from what I gather, uh, the 4th of July is celebrating Americans independence from Britain. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. And you would believe that is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the thing about the independence from Britain is that, you know, for example, it's not, it doesn't, it's not the same of the same character as, let's say, the independence of, uh, let's say, 
uh, uh, Ghana from British colonialism, for example, right? It is really the independence in the Declaration of Independence. That came in, it was more so, it was less so about throwing off the yoke of some kind of colonial order and more so about protecting and preserving slavery and colonialism as the British Empire was having many difficulties uh, in the Caribbean, across its colonies, many difficulties that were forcing it to consider things like the abolition of the slave trade. So that was kind of the impetus for it. So that's why I say, like, do I think that it would have been more progressive under the British? Like, do I do I hope? Do I have like empire nostalgia? If you don't mind, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to make a point of my understanding of it. Okay, is that uh, more Irish people died in the, the American War of Independence than any war that they ever died in before, and that was mainly because it was. The War of Independence was was only like what twenty years after the Irish famine, um, and a lot of people had suffered. Like the Irish population had been decimated by uh, by British monarchy, and um, so like more, more Irish people went and fought, for, like you know, for American independence, being anti monarchs, like you know, they're trying to they're trying to like get America free from that monarchy system. And Irish men have died, like, fighting against the, the Spanish monarchy, fighting for Argentinian independence, fighting for independence of a lot of South American company, or countries. Um, so, like, when, 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 you, when you say that the 4th of July is not something to celebrate, I, I personally think it's a great thing that America did get its independence from the monarchy at the time. And I, I, I do understand that you come from a point of view that... America is bad, so therefore, because Fourth of July is a kind of self-indulging, how great America is. Like that's that's not really for me. It's not what the holiday is about. For me, the holiday is for the change of the breakaway from the monarchy system and the belief that you know you can break away from the elite powers. You know, so it's just I feel like I kind of come from a different strand of thinking when 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 I when I put mine against yours, you know. Uh-huh. Sure. I mean, look, my content, my only contention with that, like I I'm aware that there are lots of Irish fighting on the side of the so-called patriots uh, or you know the so-called revolutionists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, during the War of Independence. In fairness, in fairness um, they, fought, they fought on both sides because they just wanted to survive, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a, so I'm aware of that. My distinction, though, would be that, I mean, in terms of the condition of the Irish and the Irish's position to the British, like there is, uh, you know, there is no, there's 100% support for you know, Irish independence and, you know, of course the relationship is colonial and uh, uh, I totally get why there would be a mentality of, yes, let's fight on the side against the monarchy at all costs, certainly. But I do think that there's a distinction between that and who was actually driving the overall trend toward independence. I don't believe it was the Irish who were fighting on the side of the page, I believe it was slavers and colonizers uh, uh, who are re- were renouncing 
the British monarchy for a whole host of reasons that weren't necessarily benevolent. They were more so on the side of their business interests. And what would serve them, for example, in terms of getting rid of certain taxes that were being leveled upon them because they weren't actually paying the crown for a lot of different things. So there, there's, I think that there's many different contradictions we could look at, but the overall... I, I do think you made a good point there. Like, I, I yeah. do agree that like after most revolutions where people's like, you know, ideals of like, you know, breaking free from the monarchy, making a new society, thinking that like, once you get away from this, you just have the freedom to be yourselves. That normally, unfortunately, at the end of most revolutions, oligarchs and the people with all the money just literally so, like fill that vacuum of power and it just gets so corrupted instantly. But I mean, for the reason of the 4th of July and kind of like the war of independence, a lot of people who gave their lives and fought in that war, I would believe, thought they were fighting for higher ideals. So even if the if the holiday alone was just for the ideal of breaking away from the elites, from the ideals of detaching yourself from the monarchy and the elites, because that's what that's the spirit I think that the Fourth of July was fought in. But like, not it wasn't it wasn't the outcome, obviously, because it was so corrupted, and like you know, like you know, where most nations fall, oligarchs move in, fill, fill the vacuums. Like, you know, you just see, you see them then ruin nations after. But I mean, I, I think the 4th of July in itself, yeah, no, it's, it's fair. I like, I think it's a good holiday, you know? All right, Shane. Well, I do have to move on. You know, this is where we'll fair. agree. No, disagree, no, th- thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. Appreciate it. Go on. Look, I'll catch you later. All right. So, we got Derek and we got Snarf. <laughs> nice name. And then we got L. I, I saw you last time, L. Uh, so please stick around. Uh, I know you're third, but Derek, you are the next caller. Hello. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Um, yeah, that's a good question, um, right? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have less representation in our government now than, than uh, when a bunch of basically illiterate colonists decided to take a stand against the unrepresentative government. Um, yeah, good question. You know, I mean, it definitely wasn't all about uh, some rich boys and their plantations and their interests. You know, after, after uh, Thomas Paine put out common sense, you know, you had within a few short months, uh, everyday people fully on board ready to never bow down to monarchy again. Um, So that shouldn't be dismissed. You know, it's a mistake for the elites to think that they ever get shit done without the, without the little people. But anyway, I wanted to bring up uh, boycotting. Like Shelley was talking about strategy. Uh, I don't see, I don't see leftists, progressives, revolutionaries talking about boycotting in a way that's, uh, strategic um you know in a way that's coordinated or you know anything more substantial than just getting annoyed by a company here and there and then deciding oh we shouldn't buy shit from them but uh i think uh, a a good strategy would be to uh go for their fucking throats you know all they care about is money that's it so 
the corporations, big money interests that that interfere with our political process the most, we should boycott them. We should target them without emotion, without taking into consideration anything else. We should have a coordinated effort where we simply go by whatever companies are interfering with our political process the most. We boycott them. What do you think? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about the boycott question is that boycotting, you know, I, I was hearing that there's legislation being kicked around to ban boycotting. And I, I forget what context my wife was telling me about it. She was a union organizer. So I don't know if it would, has to do with union boycotts, but certainly we know that BDS, right, has come under heavy fire from the state. So boycotting is a certainly is a it's a tactic that should serve a larger strategy um, i do you know i think that certainly if for example the like getting money out of politics is the question is the let's say the issue i think that's a, a good strategy uh, to for that one of the one of the complicated things about boycotting though is that organizing consumers is even harder than organizing workers and so i do think that boycotts generally need to be complemented with some kind of worker-based strategy as well for them to be successful as a tactic so i do think that was that's one thing i would say that we'll, we'll have to think about when it comes to boycotts it's very difficult to have boycotts without involvement of working people in some kind beyond the boycott. Uh, that's why in unions, boycotts generally happen as like one tactic as part of many that involve workers in in that uh, process, in that struggle. So, so that's one thing I'll say, but I do think that it should be on the table. Um, and, and yeah, like, like, in terms of the first comment about the uh, American War of Independence, I would also just add, I would like to add something that maybe some have not thought about. But, you know, I'm a communist. So I believe that we need to look at the economic relations of any given moment of time and understand them to really get a, to really get a picture of what the class struggle was like at a time, at a certain particular period of time. And in the United States, well, I'm not going to call it the United States, in the colonies that were waging this war of independence, there wasn't really a, 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 a form, like a developed working class, meaning there wasn't really heavy mass industry that where you had an employer-employee relationship in any sort of major way. There was mostly kind of like apprenticeships, small, you had the uh, indentured servants that became kind of these kind of like petty, uh, petty shop. You had like, you had farmers, you had a, a kind of a class character that all revolved around colonialism and slavery. And so when we talk about kind of like little people participating in the war of independence, we have to understand that the political economy of the colonies at that time was completely and entirely driven by colonialism and by slavery. Nothing about it was untouched. I mean, that still continues to this day, of course, in a less direct form, because, of course, capitalism has developed 
uh, you know, well beyond uh, the stage it was in then. But nonetheless, we have to remember that to understand that there were ruling class interests driving the War of Independence and that they were primary. Uh, that's not to say that the British Empire was some kind of benevolent force, but there were two things that happened during, right prior to the call for independence that I believe doesn't get enough attention in terms of the reasons why it even happened in the first place. You had a 1763 treaty that said that the colonizers couldn't go uh, further, I think was it past the Appalachian Mountains. That was very infuriating. It was all, it was a treaty to try to protect indigenous lands. It was really to prevent for the British. It wasn't benevolent. So this is why I want people to understand. I'm not talking about the British as some kind of revolutionaries. They were responding to business interests themselves. They didn't want to see conflict. They didn't want to see an unending war between indigenous people and and the colonialists. It's not good for business. You got to fund that. You got to you got to pay for that. And the empire didn't want to pay for it. The same with slave rebellions. They didn't want to continue to pay for slave rebellions. And a lot of the colonial a lot of the colonialists, the these major slavers, traders, they they weren't paying. They, they weren't literally paying their taxes. So that that was uh, that conflict, right? That was really what was drive, what drove it. Of course, the little, the little people, uh, those who uh, were caught, there they were certainly folks caught up in it. And, and of course, right, the economic interests of the slaver could certainly reflect upon and have an impact on the economic interests of everybody. You know, people who are aspiring to get richer, um, but. M- because there was this dynamic of slavery <laughs> that basically drove the entire economy, you know, there was really no free people innocent from that, right? There weren't, there was anyone who was free was benefiting from that because their whole entire existence was predicated upon the growth of that, of that, of that particular quote unquote market, right? The trade of human flesh of African flesh. So I just want to put that out there and say that, I mean, that's where I come from in terms of looking at the class basis for the war of independence. You have to look at what were the actual relationships at the time, the social relationships, where was the development of the economy at that time? If we don't see that, then we may, project ideals and values onto that event that perhaps don't really exist. Um, But I want to get to the next caller because I'm going to be on here for another 15 minutes to half hour. So I want to get to everyone. So Schnarf Shtick, I like your name (laughs) and you're the next caller. You don't sound like you're very confident in the position that you were, you were presenting. Are you, or do you, do you a hundred percent agree that that's the way it was? What do you mean? I'm confused. What, so, what so I too would characterize myself as a Marxist. I would characterize myself as a socialist and maybe go far enough once in a while to call myself a communist. But I think what we're missing here and what your earlier caller Shane was missing is that 
like I'm gonna be f- flat out. I, I think the fact that he's narcissistic, narcissistic enough to bring up ethnicity in the middle of of a of an American holiday, th- there's something wrong with with that. I don't think that's a good point to make. But further, the Fourth of July as a whole is an example of the manipulation of the elites on both sides taking advantage of poor people. You're right. The proclamation line was designed so that the colonists wouldn't go too far out so that they didn't have to to provide protection against the native indigenous people. And at the same time, respect the boundaries with the French who really took a beating. The point here is, is that the vast majority of the motivation that was behind the American revolution was extremely bourgeois. And Derek brought this up with, with Thomas Paine. Paine became the, the pen of the revolution and he had some ideas that were extremely contrary because in the early stages of the American Republic, if you didn't hold property, you were worthless. And some people, as you said before, were property. Um, but I do think that there's a greater, there's a greater, um, pattern that we need to focus on when it comes to that period of time, which is the United States never had feudalism. It was born into capitalism and it just hit the ground running. Um, but I have the same discussion with people that I know that went to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and I tell them, I'm like, I will never thank you for your service. Because what the fuck were you doing? And a lot of them will agree with me that their time was was a waste. And the only thing that they did was exacerbate human suffering. My obsession is always with identity. Like it's my, it's my, you know, if I have, if I have something that I go after, I go after identity and we need to be cognizant of that as socialist Marxist and, and communist is that the ideas that separate us are essentially the breeding ground of capitalism and narcissism, the two thriving forces that are really, really hurting the left. Right. And if we don't deal with that, like I understand you want to be polite and civil and the guy's bringing up his ancestry and talking about people dying, but he's not even accurate. I mean, the Irish famine is in 1840, 45 has nothing to do with that. And, and there, and there were Irish people in the United States who were, who were here. And there were people that were being forced and drafted into the, into the British, uh, army and, and even mercenaries that, that were doing it. And it, yeah, I get that. But here's my point. Their blood is red. There's no difference. Right. So why does it matter that we bring up the fact that they're Irish and it's important to celebrate it? Like, what the fuck are you going to do? Have a hot dog? Because because people died 200 years ago. You have no connection to those people other than the, the manifestation in your mind. You know what he should have a connection to are the people who are suffering right now. And he doesn't because his mind is rotten with narcissism. And. With that said, I, I just, I'm hoping that I can find another person on call in that isn't just so trapped in identity politics. So my question to you is, at what point are we going to put aside the masturbation that, that a lot of leftist discourse has with identity? Interesting. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, from, First of all, I mean, the analysis is definitely true. Uh, thank you for the addition of the Irish famine uh, factoid there. I completely was probably spacing out at that point when he brought that up. Um, so I think in terms of your question, though, because I think the analysis is definitely there, I think the 
you know, the <laughs> July 4th, you know, in terms of bourgeois ideas, I mean, is, is there anything, you know, greater in terms of an example of that? I'm not sure. <laughs> so I do want to say, though, that, you know, it seems like what that caller was doing, uh, eventually it felt kind of trollish, and perhaps I should have just placed them on mute because it did feel a little bit trollish after a while. I will say that, you know, I think that the identity politics conversation has become, yeah, it's become very toxic. And I think it's because the term identity politics has become popularized in a time where you have won the the, the near total, if not total, defeat of the left. And then, two, you had the, through that defeat, you had the liberals, you call them the liberal class, the bourgeois liberals, whatever you want to call them. Um, they began to adopt a certain kind of language to steer us. And I don't think that's what the, in a certain direction, I don't think that's what that caller was doing. But he certainly was using his identity, uh, unfortunately, afactually. But he was using his identity to try to make a point that really wasn't there. But I think overall, when it comes to this whole question of identity and politics, because I, I definitely hear you, like, I am on, I am all for class struggle. Um, and I think that that's what we really need to be focusing on. I... I do think that we can't in this class. Maybe it's not about calling it identity, but there are relationships, social relationships, the power that we that we can always connect to class, but can't necessarily be called class, lest we completely you know take away the definition of terms. So I do think like we do need to be supporting you know, national liberation movements. We do need to be supporting the rights of oppressed people. Uh, we do need to be upholding those things in the class struggle. It's just that this whole identity politics conversation has become, well, it's either class or race, or it's class or whatever, LGBTQ rights or whatever. Now, I think that the conversation for me, if I, if I call myself a communist, I, I think that the only communist socialist way of going about this is to actually address the contradictions as they are. And we can't address class struggle in the United States without addressing the particular particularities that, for example, black people go through. Because we can't just say, oh, it's just a working class issue, right? No, we can't just say that because there's a long history of black struggle for self-determination that uh, 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 cannot just be fit neatly into uh, the struggle for the working class certainly not shouldn't be separated from it, but it just doesn't fit so neatly. The United States, you know, in our conversation, in my conversation with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, she said it. She said that, yeah, the United States is, you said it too. Uh, you're right. No feudal stage, right? This went right into capitalism, slavery and colonialism fueled capitalism here. And it created a certain class situation here, a, a certain dynamic that is, Probably, perhaps the one of the most complicated. I don't want to go into comparisons here with other contexts, but I do think it's one of the most complicated sort of set of 
relationships, class relations, social relations. Uh, and therefore, I think we have to really make sure that our our emphasis on class is able to understand and be in solidarity with and fight for uh, the whole gambit of issues that speak to imperialism, capitalism, white supremacy. And if we just purge the whole framework of identity politics, I'm fine with that because I'm certainly, I'm certainly sick of hearing that term. (laughs) I, I hate it. I don't look at my, for example, uh, I'm Vietnamese, German, Irish, French. I don't, I don't look at myself and say, "Oh yeah, that's me." That it, no, I look at, well, what has my experience been as a working class person growing up, uh, Vietnamese, quote unquote, looking um, in this society? That's what I look at, right? That that's what I, that's what I think about. That's what I feel like has driven me. So I don't. So yeah, I think that there's we can talk about this differently, and I, and I definitely appreciate you bringing up, um, bringing this up. But I do want to get to the next caller. This is El Dom. Welcome back. Oh, hi, Danny. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Thanks for coming. Oh, great, great. Uh, thank you for the points that you made, particularly in response to you know kind of the previous callers that's come up. It's 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 uh, often been sort of a frustrating, particularly as an African American, you know, hear the interpretation of uh, American ideals. Um, frustrating, but not surprising, particularly from you know white people out- outlining what's the ideals of America and what it what it what it once was. <laughs> and it's turning into something different. Where my experience is, it's not turning into anything different. It's actually turning into the America that most Black people have already experienced and know. So in a sense, you can kind of say that America is only becoming what it always has been to most others who are marginalized in this society. And America is in a unique position. It, it stands particularly at this time, as you could probably, you know, uh, ascertain in this time of history from being a a sole superpower, not simply because of its economic dominance, but also because of its cultural imperialism as well. You know, how it interprets the world to the world. I find it very, you know, I I find it, um, you know, frustrating, odd, but again, not surprising that uh, the impression that most Americans have now of Russia is negative. The impressions that most Americans have now of Chinese is, of China is negative. All really due to a intensive propaganda, you know, uh, campaign that's been carried out. And, and it has me wondering, well, if you, you know, if you, if you hate Russians so much, you know, tell me how you feel about black people <laughs> because propaganda about black people has been around for centuries. <laughs> so, you know, it is that kind of lack of self-awareness uh, that I find uh, most white Americans and Europeans refuse to undertake because particularly Americans, I, as we're talking about identity, well, you know, identity has really has been wrapped up into what white folks have been told about themselves. And I think that there's a growing frustration that, you know, the 
the, the, the privilege of whiteness that was granted to white people, uh, well, you know, the mileage is now starting to vary. Yeah. Yeah. No, very, very good points. I think, you know, I mean, these are all things I really appreciate everyone coming on, giving their thoughts about July 4th and significance. But, you know, one of the things that like in general report that we've, you know, before Glenn Ford died and even, even when Bruce Dixon was still alive and, you know, we're still thinking about this now is how the power of the democratic party has, you know, the influence of the democratic party has confused things so much. Like we had during that whole Russia gate scandal, also, because you had Maxine Waters and some of these black politicians embracing the Russiagate narrative, embracing the anti-Russian narrative, you had a lot of black people agreeing with that because they were they were observing what their politicians, who they view as the only force that can beat the Republicans, uh, kind of adopting this and being influenced by it. And I and I think that's one of the more sort of tragic parts of all of this, and, and one of the the more insidious. Uh, results of this entire, we can call it bourgeois propaganda apparatus, this, uh, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of, of imperialism and capitalism and racism is that now at this stage, you have this larger global geopolitical conflict shaping out. And you also have the internal, you know, led by the United States, right? Kind of scorch earth of everything. And then you have on the scene in the United States, you have a real crumbling empire, right? We have a crumbling empire and it's crumb and and the it's inside, it's belly is absolutely sick. It's, it's coming apart. And it, the legitimacy of the political system, the economic situation for so many, uh, we know that a, a huge reason why you have so many, I think, so many white people, even uh, we call some of them workers, but not all of them are workers, but some of going, you know, these swing voters, these folks going to Trump, it's not all because, oh, well, they're just resentful about their economic situation. It's because their economic situation is also seen as a reflection of this society and as a reflection of these bourgeois and, and, and ultimately we have to say a racist ideas. Like we can't underestimate how, yeah, it's not just Trump was racist. It's not just that the GOP is racist that attracts people. It's also because the economic interests that the Democratic Party is not serving uh, uh, gets completely and utterly distorted from the so-called alternative, the GOP, to mix and meld white, we call identity politics, with so-called working class politics. And I think that is where i think that's where a lot of people have obsessed there's been a lot of obsession about this right a lot of obsession about well how do we get the quote unquote white working class without ever even understanding what the fuck working class means you know what does that mean to people uh, what is it it is working class just how you vote you know what i'm saying and your income no it's your relationship to production to uh, the you know uh, to the forces of exploitation. How does your economy? How does your system organize itself? That is what uh, class. That's how that's how you determine class, and that also includes right the condition. This very particular conditions of 
wherever we're speaking about, whether we're talking about the indigenous people of New Zealand, Australia, whether we're talking about indigenous people in the United States, black people in the United States, we have to understand class from, from that end as well and how bourgeois politics serve to channel all forms of resistance, all forms of class struggle into uh, really acceptable means. And I think that's where a lot of the anger about quote-unquote identity politics comes from. Uh, but we also have to be careful that class politics is not all about electoralism. And I think electoralism has been dominating the conversation as it would in a situation where we don't have a strong left on at the grassroots level. Like we just don't. And so, uh, uh, and, and we don't have one that is organizing uh, that, that has, well, we have one that's organizing, but we don't have one that is prepared to build an independent vehicle just yet for many different reasons, not just because people are just dumb or people are just misled. It's also because of the conditions that people find themselves in, uh, which are a heavy influence, right? We can't just say that it's all people's faults, right? That's, that's a trope of the right. That's not how we should be looking at things. Um, so I want to, uh, you know, I know there are a few people, uh, I don't see anyone new in the queue. I do have to go a, a bit early on this day to day. So I have to keep this, um, to below an hour. So I'm already there. So first, before I go, you know, I just want to say if, if you haven't yet, Please do follow me here on call in. I try to do w- at least one show a week here at Cold War Brew. I mainly talk about the new Cold War today. It's July 4th weekend. I talked about the NATO summit yesterday. I talked about, you know, the significance of China and NATO. You can catch that one. Uh, I decided to talk more about July 4th today because it's July 4th weekend. And I just got off with Roxanne Denver Ortiz on the Left Lens YouTube channel. So do subscribe there as well. And. You know, so follow me here on Colin. Uh, make sure they're following the podcast. And, you know, another way you can support me is on patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. I write columns. I do streams on YouTube. And I'm also doing this Colin podcast. But um, that's the way you help support my journalism. And I would really appreciate it. Whatever you could provide if you're able. Um, and I will be back again very soon. Um I'll likely see you all at some point next week, later in the week. Uh, I've been trying to test out times. I was doing it every 11.30 a.m. on Sundays. Now I'm kind of going on after I do uh, live streams, um, trying to get people on that way to get on the app. But um, yeah, just just follow me, keep a lookout, um, and uh, take care, everyone. Uh, This was a good chat. Thanks so much for coming. And I'll see you all again very soon. Bye-bye.